Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings, and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves, and it's generally weekly. Occasionally, there are some different things that happen, so we deal with that and roll with the punches, and you ought to as well, and we're sorry to keep you waiting. We know that the streets, Stop the streets are thirsty, and they need this, um, and, uh, and we're here for you, and we've, got, and we've got a good one lined up for you. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Uh, I'm Camille Foster. I do all sorts of great things at Freethink, um, and you should probably be familiar with those things. And if you're not, then something's wrong with you and not me. I am joined by exceptional company today, like really, really great company. Um, I mean, we should get these guys out of the way. Michael Moynihan, Vice News, he's around. Matt Welch, editor-at-large, Reason Magazine. It's not really a job, but they do apparently pay him. Otherwise known as the backbone of this podcast, Camille. You are dismissing so (laughs) offhandedly. He has some sort of role. I'm both the slash and the Axl Rose of this podcast. (laughs) I mean, it does leave two (laughs) slots for you guys. He is the master. Sorum. Um, <laughs> Izzy Stradlin. There's nothing wrong with being Izzy Stradlin. There's yes. no harm in that. Yeah, you can't, you're more <laughs> tough. You, you than, started the I don't even know who had. those people are. But Camille, before you <laughs> introduce the person who all of our podcast listeners will already know is the guest because it's in the description, um, I just want to say <laughs> this, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, is why you had to wait. So all of those people sending messages, well, where have you been? You have, do you have food poisoning? Did somebody get COVID? I appreciate the concern. Yeah. But sometimes you have to wait an extra week for our next guest, who we have been talking about incessantly for, I think, about seven or eight years now. <laughs> yeah. I think about nine yeah. Nine years. Not quite that long, um, but, but certainly for a number of months now, um, I have been referring to our guest today's book, The Revolt of the Public, and I've been encouraging as many of you as possible to read this book. And almost daily at this point, I get like direct messages or emails from from people who are thanking me for having recommended this book. Former CIA analyst and author of the aforementioned Revolt of the Public, Martin Gurry is joining us. Martin, thank you so much for for blessing us with your presence. Happy to be here. I think after that. Um... <laughs> As I said before we started, Martin, don't disappoint us. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot riding on this. <laughs> no, I'm, well, I really am thrilled to be able to talk to you and I, I want to get right into it. Um, but I also, I, I feel a bit torn because I both want to sell this book. I want people to understand how important it is to go out and read it. But I also want to want to play up what I think is one of the best qualities of this book and a lot of your work, broadly speaking, because I've, I've read a number of your columns at uh, Cine Journal. And one of the things that I think is so important about this book is it's not it's not like a lot of those political prognostication books giving you this grand theory of history and how all of the things unfold. There's a genuine modesty um to the the thesis of your work um, that I think is really refreshing. <laughs> You're someone who has been an intelligence analyst, and as opposed to telling me that you know exactly what's going to happen because you have a crystal ball, your approach tends to be, well, the future is is uncertain. We can't know what's going to happen. I have earned my modesty, I have to say. Um, 
I, uh, I did work at CIA for many years. And CIA's business model was prophecy. And I always say, if you, if, if you assume that tomorrow is going to look like yesterday, which surprisingly uh, it almost always does, then that's a good business model. Day by day, that's, that's a good, you predict yesterday and, and you're usually right. But of course, that's not what the president wants. The president wants to hear discontinuities. He wants to hear the 9-11s. He wants to hear uh, the Soviet Union is imploding or the Soviets got the bomb. Whenever there was a discontinuity, CIA missed it. And I, I don't think it was because of lack of trying or incompetence on anybody's part. Simply, the future is unknowable. And when these discontinuities happen, um, everybody's caught by surprise. Um, the, the president demands prophecy from CIA. CIA stands up to bat and, and de- delivers prophecy. Uh, but the whole thing is kind of a sham, I think, in, in many ways. And so I learned from being inside there that you can provide frameworks of interpretation, which I hope is what the book does. But the idea that you can look into the future, you know, I think that sort of went out of business around the year 600 BC in Israel, you know, when the last of the prophets back there died out. I think that that was it. Yeah. I mean, the way I've I've described it for a few people is as opposed to this being kind of an iron law of societal development. It's a heuristic for being able to wrap your head around a lot of the profound strangeness that seems to be happening. And maybe I'll, I'll take a stab at trying to set up the thesis of the book. You can correct me and we can all kind of get into the conversation from there. This is a book that is fundamentally about the palpable sense of discontent that a lot of us have seen boil over over the course of the past year, but that has really been with us for a while. And this is certainly a book that is about government and discontent with government, both you know democratic governments and governments of various other kinds, but it's not limited to government. This is a phenomenon that is global in scope that is affecting essentially all elite institutions that are responsible for helping us make sense of the world. It's the media, it's the academy. Some people have referred to that trifecta, the government, media, academy as the the cathedral. Um, But all of these institutions have seen a profound erosion of their authority and credibility and the discontentment that the public is feeling is actually driven by something that will probably surprise folks who haven't heard us talk about this before. It's driven by what you call the information tsunami. Um, So it's the fact that we have gone over the course of my own lifetime and really in the course of the last like decade or so in a number of places, but to having these massive supercomputers in our pockets that have access to incredible quantities of information, whole libraries. And that makes it much harder for a lot of these elite institutions to dictate and control the narrative, the institutions that were able to kind of craft essentially the way that you view the world and give you a sensibility about what the truth is. They don't really have that control anymore. Um, The the public does, um, but all of the consequences of this are not necessarily positive. Um, am I am I getting that right, Martin? Could you yeah, very clarify much. and maybe draw out the conclusions a little bit more? I can tell you um, when I was when I was a young analyst at CIA, uh, the the world of information was a very simple place. I mean, I look back on it as like I lived in the dark ages or something. I mean, it just is remarkable today to think of that world where basically open information 
was a trickle, a trickle. And so if like the president wanted to find out what, for example, his policies, how, the, how are my policies playing in France? Well, we got like two newspapers you could go to and there were like three columnists in each and you, you had it, right? So you have this world of institutions that was essentially set up for this uh, information scarcity landscape. And the institutions themselves controlled the flow of information. I mean, they had a, what I call semi-monopoly over that information. And it turned out their legitimacy depended on that. Well, somewhere on the turn of the century, the new millennium, if you want to get, you know, portentous, everything changed. I was an analyst of global media, so I was just sitting right there. And it was like, it literally, it literally felt like a tidal wave had swept over us. We had no idea what was happening. And at first, of course, it was just the volume of the thing that just just, just stupefied us. Is This thing that was uh, literally unprecedented in human history in terms of the volumes of information that were being generated. But ultimately what really mattered was the effects. Information has effects. We don't have to think of it that way, but it has very deep effects. And right behind that tsunami of information as different countries digitized at, at different rates. Uh, you could see this crazy, ever-increasing level of social and political turbulence. Uh, and it seems like a, a naive thing to say, but at the time we asked ourselves, so what's the connection? This is just a, uh, a means of information, the internet, you know, what's, what's it got to do with politics? Um, well, I mean, in the end, of course, uh, it had two big things to do with politics. Number one, it gave a voice to a public, which turned out to be not very happy with the way things were. And number two, it stripped away that legitimacy, that authority from the institutions who, which no longer had control over the narratives that got told. I mean, in the old days, the 20th century uh, politicians pretty much asked to be judged on their intentions. So, you know, if you were Jocelyn Kubitschek in, in Brazil and you wanted to build Brasilia, which is a perfect example of, of that kind of 20th century utopian thinking, mm -hmm. you said, I can give you 50 years of development in five by building this thing in the middle of the jungle, okay? And of course, nothing like that ever happened. But to this day, Jocelyn Kubitschek is judged by that great intention. Uh, and um, many of the great plans of, that 20, of the 20th century, the high modernist era, uh, came to nothing. Some of them succeeded, many came to nothing. But it, you were judged by the measure of your ambition, how much you wanted to bring society closer to, to fixing the human condition, to utopia. Uh, and in the new dispensation, that just, didn't fly because basically the if you've ever been inside of an institution like I was inside CIA, it's messy, it's real messy. Okay, it's where the sausage gets made. And now with the internet, the insides are outside. Okay, and everybody gets to see them. So um, everybody's watching this and thinking, well you know, you, you keep promising, and the rhetoric has not changed, by the way. And one, of the, one of the things that I think needs to be fixed is we're, our politicians still, are, we demand, I think as voters, that they engage in that 20th century rhetoric, I can fix unemployment, and I can fix inequality, and I can fix this. It's a problem, and I have a solution, like it was a sort of mathematical construct. Um, 
And, and of course, the second they get elected, it becomes clear that they have no idea what they're doing and the public then rebels against them. So um, information is, 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 is more than just stuff. It, it, it has a, a, a value. And today the, the public basically commands the, the strategic heights over the information landscape. Uh, the elites who run the institutions, I think, are totally demoralized, have no idea what to do because their every mistake, their every misjudgment, their every sexual escapade, anything they do, it's going to become an endless subject for discussion and mockery and, 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 and debate. Today, I think elite failure sets the, the information agenda. And so we're kind of stuck in this place uh, between a public, and we can talk about what the public is in a minute, that is basically against and elites that are basically like deer in the headlights, just wondering what the heck is happening and not really sure what to do. And just basically wanting to survive whatever it is that they're doing without getting disgraced. Martin, the internet basically is what we're talking about. Is that changing the way the public consumes things or is it sort of exposing, the, you know, what the, the public discontent that was already there? So, for instance, you mentioned France and you would go look at newspapers in France and you'd look at, you know, Le Monde and Le Figaro, you know, the conservative one, the, 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 the sort of liberal one. But that's giving an impression of what the elites in Paris think, right? And prior to all of the Internet stuff, I mean, people often forget about this is that Front National, the, the far-right populist party in France, did quite well in the 90s, despite not having any sort of media outlets that were carrying them, where today you could imagine there'd be a sort of Breitbart.com or some you know, Twitter things or these alternate sources of information. And that is true of all of these far-right parties in Europe. And you know, I've done a few pieces on this, and they create their whole media ecosystem to do an end run around around traditional media. So when you are observing the traditional media, it's very, very helpful to know what grandma in Havana is saying, because it's the voice of the government. How helpful was it, you know, you know, trying to understand what was coming out of the mouths of the editorial board at Le Figaro in Le Monde, and how representative of that was the people? So did the people kind of change with the information, or did it just kind of expose this these fissures no, that were already there? I, mean, I don't think anybody gave a damn what the people thought, or what the public thought. I that's mean, what was the that's point? right, yeah. It had absolutely no influence over anything. It was elites talking to elites. Uh, and that to this day happens a lot, and, and in Europe, and, and in France in particular, which is a in some ways, a, a conservative country, it, for good reasons and bad, uh, it, it has re retained that idea that elites talk to elites. Um, I think that's part of what um, what the public finds um, so very frustrating is that when they listen to the people that run the institutions, they speak a foreign language almost. They speak a foreign language. And I think a man like Donald Trump or like Jair Bolsonaro in, in Brazil who makes Trump look like an etiquette book by comparison, by the way, um, it, it, they, they are chosen by the public, not despite their weird talk and their outrageous statements, but because of them, because they, they're sort of indicating by those weird statements, we're not part of that crowd that keeps talking in that weird, strange policy language that seems to shut you out and has no interest in the things that you're interested in. So I, 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 I mean, I think in the old days, the public counted for nothing. It was a, um, essentially a, a passive audience 
there was a there really was no public as I defined the, uh, that entity. It was a passive audience. It was a uh, that great big mass audience, which was I like to say like a huge mirror where we all saw ourselves reflected because we were there were the entire mass of the United States. Popular watch the same TV shows. We watch the same news shows. We watch the same movies, freaking cars. I mean, it, there was a gigantic amount of similarity. We were herded in that direction. And what's happened with uh, the digital age is that that mirror that we're all reflected on has fallen and has shattered. And we're all living in the little broken pieces. And that's the public. We're talking uh, on Wednesday, which is the day that Rush Limbaugh died, who I think is kind of an interesting person to uh, think about in this lens because uh, I'm wondering of a phrase and a concept that you grapple with, which is uh, um, you know the past included information scarcity. At least it looks like it now compared to the world that we live in, and that's that's for sure. But as we were experiencing it in the '90s, was it scarcity then? I mean, I remember Bruce Springsteen had a really crappy song called "57 Channels and Nothing, nothing On." on. Yeah. Now yeah. there's like you know 500. <laughs> 75 trillion channels and nothing still nothing on. Is on, by the way. What's that? <laughs> still nothing is on. Yeah, still nothing is on. Um, less than ever is on. Um, but Rush Limbaugh, um, uh, whatever one thinks of him, um, he was kind of a um, – he did a couple of interesting things. The, the, the AM talk radio, political talk radio, that he was the kind of pioneer and the biggest uh, kahuna on – um, it was a repository. It was a place for people who felt alienated from newspapers, from the dominant daily newspaper. They would go and they could console one another. But it also was a place where they could actually literally talk back. Like he created a subculture of people. Yes, they were ditto heads, but they also were a feedback loop from him too, reflecting on his passage and like that role in kind of populism, media, democratization, just how you reflect on that news through your thesis today. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I tend to think of it just in terms of the volume of information that to me in the end was was determinative. And it was a process. I mean, it's not like I, I tried to dramatize it. And I think actually when you look at the difference, it's fair to dramatize it by saying that at the turn of the century, things went haywire. But in fact, there was a process that began in, in the late 80s with um, both um, uh, CNN and 24-hour news and satellite mm -hmm. news came on and you had Al Jazeera. And yeah, you had talk radio, and which it, it has many similarities to online discourse. Uh, so it was a process. It's a process. The, the, the question has to do with at a certain point, the system, the institutional system, the structures just seem not to be able to handle the volume. There comes a moment when they just kind of start to break down from the volume. Uh, and I think that happened around the turn of the century. The, it's the volume of content. It's also the number of sources and the fact that anyone can be a source. You, you go through a number of different things um, that have happened both in the United States and around the globe. But these instances where a single person posting something in response to a, a renowned institution, or at least one that had been, you know, formally enjoying a monopoly on the dissemination of information, finds themselves confronted by the single individual. And the single individual or small group of people, it turns into a mass of people. And eventually you get a massive demonstration. And the manifestations of this, as you lay out, it's 
both surprising outcomes at the ballot box. You know, there was this tome of the party decides very frequently read in like public policy circles and political science circles. It kind of outlined how political parties were handpicking certain candidates and, you know, the the process of finding the right or next president, the person who's going to run um, on behalf of the party was a lot less democratic than people suspected. Um, But we've had a sequence of presidential candidates who have upended elite expectations about whose turn it was and who was going to win. And we've seen that not just with the presidency, but with Congress as well. Um, You've got, you know, Donald Trump and Barack Obama, but you also have AOC um, and various other people in Congress who got there in somewhat surprising ways, not just kind of an upset, but a dramatic upset. Um, And the mechanism by which this happens seems to be the very same dynamic that is animating everything from Occupy Wall Street to the Yellow Vest to Black Lives Matter and the the QAnon crowd, or at least the the MAGA supporters um, who overran the Capitol not too many weeks ago. The public has this uh, insatiable hunger for repudiation right now. Why that is, is a really interesting question, and I don't really have the answer for it. Uh, but that it is there is undeniable. So it can take many different manifestations. It can, for example, mean the Yellow Vest in France. They spend a year in Facebook groups called anger groups, <laughs> group de colère, just yelling and screaming about Macron. <laughs> oh and, and then one day they just show up on the streets, 300,000 of them. If you happen to be Macron or a Macronist sitting in your office, that's about, by by the way, being taken over just kind of like the Capitol building and you have to go scooting out for your life, you're asking yourself, who are these people? They come from nowhere. Well, they were there on Facebook for a year. They bashed the Arc de Triomphe. They burned down banks. I mean, pretty nihilistic. Um, The other one is somebody comes along who can somehow represent their hunger for repudiation in an electoral moment like Donald Trump. And they then vote for that person. And again, the the effect on the elites is the same. How did this happen? I mean, the year 2016 after that election, I, I, I have studied the reaction of the elites and it was remarkable. It wasn't like, okay, what did we do wrong? It was like, what, where, how, who, who? I mean, they, it was like somebody had hit him over the head with a two by four. It seemed like had entered a, a world of impossible things. And um, from the beginning, it was denial. Well, this couldn't have happened without something horrible having you know, been manipulated by somebody somehow, right? Uh, so those are the two, the two um, manifestations of this urge for repudiation. Now, you probably want to get into a little bit of the public itself, which is a very different uh, organism. There it is in the broken pieces. The public is not one, it's many. It's mutually hostile. They, they, they really, the idea that we're a polarized nation, I think is baloney. Uh, we're a fractured nation, okay? We, we live in many, many different uh, little islands of, of belief, but there is the unifying tendency, which is the urge for repudiation, the dislike, uh, intense dislike, for the established order. So as long as you don't mention any positive program, which would immediately divide you, all right, you can unite against. And it's remarkable, Camille. I mean, just remarkable. You go back to um, the very first uh, Arab Spring uprisings all the way 
to Black Lives Matter, all the way to Wall Street bets, if you want to even include that. Uh, and it's the same kind of mindset. It's there are no leaders. There's no organization. There's no structure. There is no programs. There are no demands. There are no claims. There is just this wish to take a stick and bash at the established order. And and in the end, of course, that's, that can be kind of dangerous. No alternatives are, are proposed. Back in the day, if you were a radical person, and I know this because when I was a young guy, there were some of those types around me. You had your own little organization, you know, your own little cell, uh, and you had your own little maximum leader in that cell, and everybody best follow orders, and you had your own little printing press, and you had your program. And, and ultimately, I mean, if you dream big enough, what you wanted to do was to take over power and, and, and implement some, some plan. None of those things are part of the public's mindset today. None of them. They're not interested in taking power and they have no programs or plans that, that they want to institute. So it's a very, very strange um, dynamic. I mean, in the case of the, in the MAGA case, what we saw recently is that people um, a little upset about losing power, right? Or they're, you know, Donald Trump losing power, as we saw on January 6th. Is that, I mean, there is some, and I think you mentioned this once that Donald Trump, when he became president, you know, governed as a sort of conventional conservative Republican. But when he ran in 2015 and 16, it was like shooting grape shot, ideological grape shot. It was all over the place. It was whatever he felt would get the biggest applause. Is there an ideological through line, at least in that type of populism? Because you see a lot of overlap with right-wing populism in Europe with kind of MAGA populism, which, and as, as you mentioned, is blowing up the previously, you know, held beliefs of what conservatism, what republicanism was, which was American Enterprise Institute, which was think tanks, which was, you know, cutting taxes and, you know, you know, talking about Milton Friedman rather than attacking free trade. And, uh, you know, Steve Bannon came into power in, in the White House and within six months, I believe he had suggested Donald Trump's big kind of policy success was the tax cuts. Him saying to the president, you have to raise the the um, highest tax, uh, I think it was 44%, he suggested, on, on the highest tax bracket. I mean, he kind of had an ideology there. Is there a coherent ideology amongst the kind of right populists who have, have had so much success recently? I mean, my take is that all that kind of talk is just babble to them. If you vote for a populist, then you're, you're embracing that person and if it's Lopez Obrador in Mexico, then you got a left guy, right? And if it's um, Bolsonaro in Brazil, you got a right guy. And if you get Donald Trump, you get something. I don't even know. To this day, I couldn't <laughs> figure out what, what what he stood for ideologically, right? But but whatever he is, that's who you voted for. And so then you kind of wed yourself somewhat to that person because you voted for him, and he's not one of the elites and whatever. But as a um, if you extract these personalities from say because a true ideology should not depend on a person, right? Uh, say, what is, what is the ideological structure of, of, these, of these groups? I mean, they are vaguely, they have this vague hue of right and a vague hue of left. You know, so if you are the, the yellow vest in France, you're sort of vaguely right. And if you are the Indianapolis in Spain, probably vaguely left. Um, but that's not what they themselves talk about, by the way, when you listen to their own protests. They're not interested in talking that talk. Uh, and and um, 
there's no coherence about policies or programs or anything like that. To them, that's elite babble. It's hard not to think about these questions uh, also against the backdrop of the last, let's say, 32 years, being specific on that number for uh, an obvious reason. 1989 ushered in the biggest bang uh, for freedom and liberalism, certainly in my lifetime and arguably in, in quite a few other people's lifetimes. I guess the end of World War II would be a way of looking at that uh, as well. But anyways, a lot of countries went from being not free to free or you know, not free to partly free. Um, the material well-being of human beings on the planet, um, the amount of extreme poverty has just shrunk to amazing levels in the last 35 years, 32 years. Um, a lot of that's from China and India not starving to death as much. Um, but the material conditions for human beings has improved. It just really has. And in fact, it's improved by a lot. You are uh, sort of tracing your kind of big bang to around 2000, which is good on a, a bunch of levels. Um, you know, it's, that's when the information sort of double every year um, and, and whatnot. So like more than half of this period of time, of unprecedented expansion of uh, material well-being and also the sort of basic political freedom, you have this incredible global worldwide sense of repudiation of the elites. Uh, I know that you point a lot of fingers at the elites as we have on this podcast a time or two um, uh, as well. Um, but what do you make of that paradox um, and in trying to figure out what the hell? No, that's a what the hell thing. You know, I mean, I, 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 I think you're a hundred percent right. I think, um, again, appealing to my, my extreme old age, I mean, the, the changes, the changes in my lifetime have been remarkable. And I'm not just even talking about prosperity. Uh, I'm talking about, you know, basically um, the ability of marginalized groups to be integrated into society. Uh, I mean, I, I was a little kid, I want to say that, but when I came to the state of Virginia, I mean, I, I, my family left Cuba, okay, and, and landed in the state of Virginia. Well, the state of Virginia, when we landed here, was a one-state party, not that different from Cuba, all right? And that one-state party existed essentially to keep blacks out, okay? So, I mean, that to me also seems like it was the dark ages. So we had this enormous, enormous uh, wave of democratization, prosperity, of uh, the individual being allowed many, many more choices and so many different things. Travel, look at travel, look at, you know, right before COVID hit, I think there were like two or three billion people every year that got in an airplane and traveled. I mean, that's insane. So you have, you have on the material plane, and this is now I'll go wildly speculative because I have no answer for this, that they're angry, and they're they're in a mood of repudiation and negation. That's that's pretty apparent. The reasons behind that's speculative. So I want to make that clear. But I mean, I think when you look at the material framework, it, it it's way better than it's ever been. All right. So you have to look somewhere else for that. And and I my I guess very speculative uh, answer would be. Um, you have people who are trying to get from politics what politics cannot possibly give them. People who uh, basically have lost their religion, have lost their sense of locality, 
have son, have lost many of them their sense of family in the old sense of the word. I mean, again, I, I come from a Cuban family. Man, you know, I, I, when I was a kid, I never knew where my family ended and the rest of the human race began. You know, you had this <laughs> feeling that there was this great big throng around you protecting you all the time, you know? Well, that sense is for many people gone, okay? And, um, and, at the same time, we're all being told that it's all up to us and that it's, you know, we're supposed to express some kind of inner beauty in ourselves or whatever. And most of us don't have that. And, and, and so you're, you're left with people who are struggling to find the most important thing next to a square meal a day uh, or three squares a day uh, um, that, that human beings need, which is meaning, right? I mean, if, if your life has no meaning, um, you're going to be distraught. And I think a lot of my guess is a lot of these individuals are seeking meaning in politics that politics cannot possibly give them. If you ever go to YouTube and look at those young people, mostly white and middle class, by the way, who did the Black Lives Matter uh, occupations in uh, the autonomous zones in in Portland and Seattle, um, they stand there and talk to, to, I guess, their cell phones for quite a bit. I mean, they, they like to talk about themselves. Um, they never make political demands. They never uh, make uh, ideological statements. They talk about the sense of rightness that they feel, this virtuous connection they feel with all these people who are around them. And some people are bringing in lunches and some people are bringing free dinners and, and how if everybody just behaved the way that they were behaving, you know, the world would be so improved, we would be closer to utopia. And you just you just can see in their eyes that they're hungry for some sort of meaning. And they're, of course, I mean, that lasted a week or two. And then, you know, guns started firing and people started dying and then the place got shut down. So um, I, I think part of the frustration and the anger is demanding utopia from politics. And are politicians feeling that you can't get elected without pr- promising something like that? playing to that game. And I don't blame the, the elites in this particular case. I blame us. Uh, and, 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 and then, of course, uh, what I call the Democrats dilemma, you can't get elected without promising the thing that's going to completely discredit you once you're in office. We, we've talked about this a lot in the show, and I agree with everything you said, Martin. And one thing I would add to it is that this desire for people to always you know, presume or, or, or just say flat out that things are not getting better. I mean, that's why when Steven Pinker writes a book, uh, Enlightenment Now, it's shocking to people and say, this can't be true. It's like violence is declining, his previous book, Better Angels of Our Nature. And, you know, Johan Norberg, our, our friend and my old friend from Sweden, who writes quite a bit on this, who brought a book called Progress. Ron and Bailey, to, too. Uh, Ron Bailey, uh, to, you know, and to Matt's uh, previous point. The, uh, the, the other side of that that's worth pointing out is you mentioned Virginia. And of course, the Loving case was Loving v. Virginia. I mean, this is obviously institutionalized in Virginia, um, racism and, and race hatred and what has been sort of flabby term now that actually meant something in the past was white supremacy, part of the kind of DNA of the state uh, of Virginia. And obviously now things are, as you point out, Martin, considerably better. On the other end of this are elites, actually, who refuse to acknowledge that things are better. I haven't, I couldn't, it's, it's baffling. 
baffling to me the number of times I have heard people say that the state of play and race relations in America is no better than it was 25, 35, 45 years ago, which is, you know, breathtaking to me. And there is this desire, this constant desire, and I don't know if it if it's, you know, because it gives them a comfortable job or what, to say that things are worse or, or aren't as good. And to, to, to when all these people are taking to the streets and saying, we're sick of this and we can't take it anymore. I have the same feeling of like, you know, I do understand that the gap between rich and poor has grown, that this genie, the genie coefficient is something to look at and a real thing. But, you know, I mean, pick a better time to live. And, you know, particularly when you go to places like, you know, go to Eastern Congo and tell people there what we believe oppression to be here. And they will say, oh, God, that sounds amazing. <laughs> could, could, could you have a spare you know, seat on the plane back? So no, I think it's, it's something that, uh, that afflicts everybody, including elites who just are desperate these days, particularly after the BLM protests, to say things are as bad as ever. And, and you know, one of the things that I find interesting about this is the information aspect of this. It has allowed us to see all this stuff in real time, whether it's, you know, Kenosha or Chaz or something. But it also gives an incredibly distorted picture sometimes, too. One event can, you know, seem as if this is happening every day, all day. And I think that actually feeds some of this, you know, discontent that, that strikes me as kind of off kilter and out of touch with reality. I have to say, if you live in the world of news, then we live in the most uh, the worst of times. Yep. Uh, if, if you mm-hmm. live in the world of where I live in, my little town of Vienna, Virginia, outside of Washington, you live in the best of times. And I have, I have, um, you know, I want to engage in one of these uh, back and forth, you know, um, I think it was with Cato Institute or something, where this, this one writer, this one thinker came up with this um, idea that we're, our politics have never been so warlike and we're in an incipient civil war, a cold civil war. And I'm, I'm reading this and okay, now, right. I'm looking at you, but if I were to look over my laptop, that's where my window is. All right. As I'm reading this stuff on my laptop, I'm watching my neighbors kind of like saunter around and, you know, social distance and wave at each other. And I'm thinking, this is the damnedest civil war I have ever seen in my life, you know? (laughs) So, um, I mean, I think if you if you sink yourself in the news, uh, you believe that we are doomed. But that I, you know, I, I probably shouldn't give, give away any any secrets, but I stay away from the news as much as I can mm. because I believe they distort your mind, uh, especially cable news. Uh, it's it's interesting that as Donald Trump leaves office and you know ratings have gotten a little bit flabbier, uh, there have been yes. some moments of excitement that have brought people back over. The, the level of like sort of sensationalism has gotten is just escalated. And the number of things that they found to be outrageous, outraged about and to sort of draw out narratives, um, unsurprisingly, seems to be increasing as well. I mean, they're, they're doing everything they can to focus people on these sort of scary, frightening narratives. Um, but at the same time, like we have seen things that that make folks nervous and certainly a lot of the the anxiety that the public is manifesting for the complicated reasons that you outlined. Um, And I want to sort of focus on two aspects of things that you've said here to try to draw out what some people may see as, well, I don't know if that sounds right to me. First, with respect to the public itself and the notion that this isn't a particularly polarized time, it seems to me that we have two somewhat complicated things going on at the same time, both um, 
a public that in the United States is less likely to identify as a member of one party or another, but they're also more likely than not to vote in a very predictable way um, and consistently hate that other side um, in a pretty uniform way, which is actually kind of schizophrenic in a way that I would expect from a public that is angry, that feels um, sort of dis- disappointed in the political outcomes, but isn't quite certain about what they want, that in many instances is sort of punishing um, one side or the other uh, rather than endorsing their program. So that's one thing. But I'm also thinking about what we saw happen over the course of the summer and the fact that you know certain certain narratives did emerge, certain slogans emerged anyways, whether or not you know, that's an entire political program. You had like defund the police, which became very popular uh, for a little while. And the fact is that that didn't really catch on completely amongst the whole swath of people, the broad swath of people who'd come together to support the Black Lives Matter protests. Not all of them could get behind this new slogan. And it seems to me that the 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 simultaneous sort of polarization in one sense where the two major sides in the United States kind of political landscape seem to be getting somewhat stronger, but there's also a lot more factionalism within those sides that's taking place at the same time. Do you, do you think that dynamic is about right? And do you think I'm, I'm sort of tracing this out in a way that maybe helps to answer the, the question that might be lurking in people's minds about the fact that they're actually hearing certain slogans? There do seem to be programs, so to speak, but maybe there's just not nearly as much uh, uniform support for those programs as someone might expect. Yeah, I mean, I'm, honestly, a slogan is, is, is not a uh, is not a program, and defund the police was just a, a slogan. And in that and in that regard, all these all these protests are remarkable that way. And American protests, in particular, because we're such a big country, and you find the same damn words <laughs> in every last one of them. All right, hey, hey. it's like ho, ho. there is. A, <laughs> one of the things that i think is interesting right now is a um a gigantic conformism all right and i think it, this is in part a generational thing i think i think the zoomers uh tend to want to keep their head low and, and not get themselves attracted by by uh, the cancelers and the haters in their group, so they they go along. But in part, mm. I think the web seems to somehow the web I always felt was going to um, <clears throat> break up um, uh, large chunks of opinion into smaller groups. It has in some ways done that. But when you have these groups, uh, and then you have the response to the groups, uh, it, it there's a great deal of conformism. You're, you're told this is the way you're supposed to think about this. And uh, and then you get given three or four slogans. I think if you got given more than that, that conformism would start to break up because it would be too detailed. So it never gets beyond the slogan level. Uh, but I think otherwise your analysis is correct. Yeah, I think we're given two, two sides to vote for. It seems to me what I see anyway um, is there's an incredible tussle of war bands for control of each side around each major election, right? And then mm-hmm. some war band wins that, that struggle and then tries to unif- unify and tends to unify 
that side around its its command. Uh, so in the end, Trump, who was such an outsider, got a record number of Republicans voting for him. Right. So yeah. everybody. Yeah. Yeah, Everybody voted for him that would have voted for whoever the Republican was. But we forget how bloody how bloody that um, that primary yes. was. I mean, the, mm. the depth of the contempt for Donald Trump when he was running yes. for the presidency yes. that first time around was remarkable. And, and the only thing I've seen comparable to it um, amongst Democrats is probably in the last couple of uh, election cycles where you have kind of the Bernie Sanders AOC faction of the party who was at sharp, sharp odds with the Hillary Clinton faction and in some respects, the Joe Biden faction. It wasn't quite clear that those two sides were going to be able to come together. And before the riots at the Capitol, there was a real severe struggle for leadership of the party um, amongst that kind of AOC faction and the establishment faction um, in the in the Democratic Party. So I, I do think there's a lot of signs that, it's not nearly a circumstance where the the party is in lockstep with one another and there's a very clear program that's going to drive the party forward. And interestingly, I, I think Joe Biden comes to power in a way that is somewhat similar to the way Barack Obama came to power, where you've got, you know, both houses of Congress and you've got the presidency and there's an expectation that you'll get things done. And it's almost like a liability. You would almost be better off if that one of those things wasn't the case so that they could point at the other side as the reason why things aren't happening, because that's really where they seem to get their political power, more so than being able to come together and get legislation passed. And Camille, to add one thing to that, the difference, I think, in the AOC coalition is that is that they're having to kind of join alongside the moderate who won, whereas in the Republican side, the sort of ex- the more extremist guy did. And, and the, the interesting thing is that the AOC types are kind of internally opposing Biden and upset at him the other day for his his town hall and saying that he was going to walk away from the $15 minimum wage, et cetera, that not, that's not going to happen on his watch. Whereas I can't remember who said this, but I think it is it turns out almost to be true that there wasn't anyone in Donald Trump's cabinet who actually voted for Donald Trump. And the number of people that were working for Donald Trump, including people that I, I remember I did a piece and I've talked about this uh, when I was at Frank Luntz's house in L.A. and he got a phone call from Mick Mulvaney and he put it on speakerphone thinking it's going to be normal. We're filming and Mick Mulvaney's like, if you fucking leave the party because of this idiot and blah, blah. And then what happens to Mick Mulvaney? I mean, all these people end up um, on the side and being part of the Trump machine and, and, and still defending him. Whereas, I mean, I, I, I guess I give them slightly more credit that uh, that, um, you know, the call is still coming from inside the house amongst Democrats that the AOC types are, are still are still uh, are slings and arrows at, at the Biden administration. There's an element, uh, uh, Martin, you wrote a, a terrific, terrific piece for City Journal um, a couple of weeks ago about the New York Times um, uh, and what you uh, describe, uh, although it's a borrowing of another uh, writer's phrase, uh, post-truth um, like a business pivot of the New York Times in the age and in response to Trump that, and I'm going to, to you know, do Reader's Digest here that you might dispute, but that, um, you know, they basically responded to the Trump era by um, thinking out loud, like, well, maybe we need to rethink 
our aspirational objectivity of the olden days so that we can call him a big racist poopy head, uh, more, more, uh, uh, and a big liar, like more explicitly and directly. And that instead of taking what uh, they had initially advertised as like, wow, you know, uh, we just saw this discontinuity and maybe we should like take an internal uh, gut check of this and also maybe pay attention to parts of the country and parts of the electoral psyche that we didn't understand um, that instead of that, they sort of pivoted to. 1619 projects, um, which actually you, you make is a pretty direct um, uh, causal like next step uh, thing um, and then get more involved in kind of purity spirals and who can we cast out and direct the kind of uh, weaponry of the paper against. Um, it's a great piece of, uh, of media criticism and I'm someone who consumes a lot of that stuff, unfortunately. Um, over the years, I'm, I'm curious um, about a couple of things of that. But first, I want to just offer you the opportunity since that piece went up like two, three weeks ago, I think. Um, the New York Times has had itself <laughs> a week and a half. Yeah. It's a good week and a half. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like they bounced a reporter for you know, saying the N word on a trip to Peru with a bunch of Andover kids, or I forget <laughs> where, where they're from. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, uh, our friend of the podcast, Andy Mills, uh, resigned, and that's a, a, a complicated uh, maneuver. But then there's this big uh, fight against uh, Slate Star Codex and the pitched battles with Silicon Valley. And, you know, the, the, the PR department of the paper basically lying on behalf of Nicole Hannah-Jones. We've already forgotten about this, but she said that she inadvertently you know, put up a phone number of a, a semi, you know, uh, a hostile reporter on Twitter for, you know, uh, 47 hours or something like that. And they're like, oh, yeah, it was inadvertent, totally inadvertent. Like, what? Anyways, they've had this time. So I'm, I'm curious if uh, you've paid enough attention to the permutations of The New York Times just over the past two weeks um, uh, and how that fits into your thesis of the times making this pivot and which is really a gamble now that Trump is no longer there of, of pivoting to what you describe as post-truth. Yeah, it's post-journalism. And um, it's, it's, it was not, I mean, it was an ideological predilection. Obviously they didn't like Trump, but deep down what it really was, was uh, an existential decision. Um you know, it, it's not generally known, but newspapers have never sold news, okay? Uh, newspapers back in the day sold eyeballs to advertisers. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was a tremendously profitable business because you eat, every newspaper had a, a monopoly for, for a large market. Um, okay, we're talking about the tsunami of information. That's gone. Okay, that that blew that one away. So now, if you're a newspaper, you have to figure out how do how do I survive? What business model? I can't I can't sell to advertisers. They all have fled online, right? Well, most of them are not going to make it. But a few brand names, like the biggies, like the, 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 the New York Times, um, have hit on this idea of you know, we'll lure you behind the paywall. Okay. Why would anybody go behind the paywall of any newspaper? Why would you pay to go into this little privileged garden? All right. Um, well, I mean, the day today the, the amount of information is such that it might as well, for practical purposes, be infused chases you and me. We don't have to go for it. You have to kind of flat it away. I mean, there's too much. 
So why would you go? Why would you go into this little garden of news, you know, and pay you good money for it? And during that 2016 campaign, I think accidentally, but I mean, they had latched onto it real quick. Uh, they came up with this proposed journalistic idea. Well, we can commodify essentially polarization, a creed, an agenda, political agenda. You can come into our, our garden as if it were a church and you're a congregant. And we are going to give you your own ideas only in tremendously uh, persuasive and articulate form. And um, their, their um, uh, digital subscriptions had been flat, flat, uh, jumped up to a million, doubled, in the first year of uh, Trump's presidency, and by 2020 was six million, which was a six-fold increase. Okay, um, now there's a question in everybody's mind: is to what degree was Trump, who was, by the way, uh, sugar daddy to all kinds of people, including yours truly, because my book started selling really well when he got elected. Um, now that he's <laughs> gone. Now that he's gone, whether you can continue that polarization. Well, all these things you're talking about, you know, the um, the, the crazy, um, you know, somebody said the N-word to a bunch of rich white kids, uh, and now you got to go, or the um, the Taylor Lorenz uh, piece that I believe Camille had some, some bit in uh, un, un, uncovering where she's lurking on Clubhouse, hoping to hear Andreessen say something naughty. I mean, this is like high school. <laughs> you know? I mean, so you can say, but it, and in the end, of course, if you look at that, that, that Star Codex piece, which it, it, it's one incoherent ramble, uh, in the end, there's Nazis everywhere or proto-Nazis everywhere, or, you know, there's all these, this delusional world that you need to have uh, to keep your um, your your congregation in the belief that yes, there's all these threats out there, and, and you have to stay inside my little my little garden of, of the paywall. Um, and I think that's what's going on in there. I think they're trying. I think there's a class of uh, very young writers in in that newsroom that are. I mean, they believe in this. They they're true believers. So um, it's it's not like they're putting it on. I think on the other hand. You have your average Times reader, who's probably very liberal, but is not interested in everything being about calling out people and Nazis everywhere. So it's an interesting business proposition. Um, the, 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 the media scholar that I followed in that article, Andre Mir, who came up with the, the book and the term post-journalism, which I heartily recommend, um, I talked to him and he says, look at... Uh, the second quarter uh, report by the New York Times and see how their um, digital subscriptions are going. The first quarter, there may be enough of a after echo of Trump that uh, mm -hmm. it, it may still be going up. But look at that second quarter report and see whether they flatten out. Well, you, you know, this is interesting because yeah, well, you would have this in the past, right? I mean, everyone knew this that if you if you ran an ideological magazine and you were in opposition, your subscriptions are going to double, right? So that happened in 2001 with The Nation magazine, went from, you know, whatever, 90,000 to 300,000. I'm just making that up, so don't fact check me on it. Uh, same thing is true in the Obama administration. 
a cons- you know, conservative outlets, you tended not to have that in actually mainstream newspapers because they were not that nakedly ideological about things. And the thing that we've talked about on this show quite a bit, and I've been banging on about this, is if we are going to see a continuation of this ideology that was kind of masquerading as sort of fact checking, like, you know, um, somebody says something and it was always that, that parenthetical, they would say, you know, comma, without evidence. I mean, how many times have I said this? And I see this, you know, all the time. I pointed something out the other day. The New York Times had written about COVID cases in China. And it said it was the first uh, 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 case in China since May. Not the, the Chinese government said that, comma, without evidence. <laughs> they just said it's the first thing. Amazing. A billion people. They didn't have one. It's where it started. But they didn't have one in that time. And the New York Times just reported that. So if if anybody thought that this was actually... A, a pivot of kind of journalistic mores. This is what it's going to be from now on. It has to, you know, get their, their head checked. But as Martin said, the people that are inside of these places now are, I just think, clearly far more ideological, or if not more ideological, allowed to be more ideological in everything that they do than maybe people that were working at the Times in, you know, 1994 or something. It must be tough to be the New York Times. I mean, let's, let's show a little bit of sympathy here. I mean, for example, Fidel Castro is disproportionately the creature of this this um, New York Times reporter called uh, Herbert, Herbert Matthews. Matthews that they yeah. Sent, yeah. <laughs> that they sent, sent down to, they sent down to Cuba uh, and, um, and Fidel Castro ran his, his troops around him and then said, no, we have thousands of people, you know. Uh, and and if he was supposed to have been dead, and he wasn't. So, but and it, but you know, you could you could have that kind of influence in the old days because in the old days, unless somebody was sent to Cuba to report on this and report it back on us, we would know squat, mm-hmm. right? That day yeah. is long gone. I mean, the New York Times today. I don't know. Have you guys seen Sunset Boulevard, the movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. New York Times is Nora Desmond. All right. <laughs> Going insane I mean, in his house, yeah. She thinks that she is still a, a dazzling uh, movie star who can who can seduce the millions with her beauty. But that was a long, long time ago, and the world has changed. And I just have this image of Salzberger wandering around some dark, lonely mansion going, we're still big. It's the news that have gotten small. The, and the New York Times used to, of course, make all of its money yeah. on advertisements, as you said. And there was a joke. Uh, when you said you talked about Herb Matthews, and it was a, a very funny joke, actually, of all places from National Review in the past. They used to have an ad campaign for their advertisement, and it said, I got my job uh, in the New York Times. And the National Review ran a picture of Fidel Castro, and it said, I got my job <laughs> in the New York Times. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there's something about this, like the vestigial authority that the, uh, that the New York Times still has and has really been trading on. I mean, that moniker, the paper of record, is still something that people say. And I think people say it with a sense of, of genuine sincerity. Even people um, like, I, I'd say ourselves collectively, perhaps maybe so just more so me like still have this sense that you know the times has done important work and is a source that when you're looking for straight news on a place that many people don't know very well here in the states and you want to know what's going on in Belarus like i my inclination is to trust the reporting of the new york times when it comes to something that is you know remotely political 
I am going to be very suspicious about some of the conclusions that are reached and the kind of reporting that's happening there in in many instances, because I know a little bit of something about the topic, but also because there's just a demonstrated proclivity to to shade things in a particular way. I mean, I, I think there's a number of different instances of this, but one thing, Martin, that I think is worth clarifying here, because when a number of people encounter the this notion of the revolt of the public and they and they hear somebody like me talk about it in the context of all of the upheaval that we've seen socially and trying to make sense out of it a lot of people imagine that this is an apocalyptic tome where you're spelling out you know the very awful thing that's going to befall the new york times the fact is that it is entirely possible for with with the information tsunami and this revolt of the public for the new york times to see subscriptions go up and for its credibility, for its authority to be degraded and to be on a constant downward trajectory. The fact is that it used to be the case that conservatives and liberals alike looked at the New York Times and said, well, yeah, I expect there to be some political bias there, but I know that I can you know, trust the reporting in it. That is, that is far less the case now. And I think across the board, we've seen this, this degradation in public opinion with respect to it's appraisal of the reliability and trustworthiness of various media institutions. And the Times is certainly no exception to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a whole lot of um, respect. I mean, let me put it this way. I don't want to be unfair. There are an awful lot of good writers uh, in the New York Times. Uh, as an institution, I think it's, it's, uh, it's Nora Desmond. It's, it's days done. It's living in a mansion thinking it's still a star and it's, it's not anymore. Uh, I, I I don't think the people who think they're important uh, are the people that uh, live in urban areas and and who are policy wonks and, and so forth. I think in terms of the information landscape, it's a tiny little blip. It's mm-hmm. a tiny little blip. And and um, I um, whether DV will survive or not, it probably will because it's got a big brand name. So in some form or another, it will survive. But it is no longer what it was in back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 20th century, the front page of the New York Times set the information agenda. It was what every other newspaper in America got its 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 front page from, and it was what the evening news got its five stories from. All right, New York Times set the information agenda. That day is long, long gone. Nobody's paying attention to the New York Times in that regard. You had a, a, a phrase that yeah. stuck with me in the I think it was in the City Journal piece. Um, talking about the kind of approach of the times, yes, but also kind of elite journalism now, which is that um, they have an active dislike. You might have even used the word contempt. I, I, I might uh, use that if we're being we are generalizing a lot of stuff here. Let's we should uh, we should posit that. But that there's a sense of contempt for the public that they are ostensibly supposed to be serving and attracting eyeballs from. And there's also a sense of contempt from other category for other categories of elites, particularly in government, but also in big business Mm -hmm. too. And that, that strikes me. It it rings to me as someone who's been on the inside and also on the outside of big media companies. Um, The, the ring of truth there is, is loud uh, to my ears because what does someone who exudes contempt do? Or like, what is your, what is one's 
uh, kind of they're not pleasant to be around and and, and this, which is but this is actually a thing i think i think there's a sourness to the approach of that paper in particular but also of the ethos you know looking at the new york times as a bellwether for journalism and for a certain type of of you know i would say degradation of liberalism it ain't fun, man. It, it's it is it is exuding contempt for people in a lot of different directions. And uh, one of the reasons I think that people migrate towards other fora, podcasts being one of them, um, is that it, you know what do people do when they're not part of these kind of architectures of journalistic power? They go into a corner and they do something that's kind of fun. They have fun. And there's, there, I think there's an inherent well, Matt, attraction to that. Yes, you've actually done a lot of great um, writing about this recently. The the proclivity for people in elite media, for for folks at the Times and various other publications, to begin to be outraged by the fact that there are these new emerging platforms, whether it be Clubhouse, where people are having quote unquote unfettered conversations, <laughs> or it's podcasts that oh my god, people are allowed to record these things and publish them. And and no one is able to regulate them. What are we going to do? Like these are these are headlines and stories that have been run in the New York Times in recent days. And I mean, I guess a question for you, Matt, because you've been covering this, and for you as well, Martin, is is part of what's going on here um, a, a media establishment that sees itself in really heated competition for attention and for relevance in a crowded media ecosystem recognizing that there are all of these other sources of information and people need to know that I am the one that can be trusted and these other people are not, which is not to say that they're completely contriving these narratives because usually the concern is, oh my God, you know, there's misinformation happening on, on podcasts. There's misinformation happening in these other places. The fact that there's occasionally misinformation in the New York Times, like questionable stories about whether or not a police officer was clubbed over the head with a fire extinguisher, which eventually seems to be pretty dubious or questionable stories about Russia and collusion that are reported on feet frantically for three to four years, um, like that doesn't seem to alarm them in nearly the same way. So is is there a relationship between those two things in your in your imagining, Matt and Martin? I, I'll start uh, and, and leave most of it to, to Martin. I, I think that there is that certainly plays a role of like uh, people are out there having entire really rich uh, media-like experiences without having to pay any attention to the New York Times at all. I mean, like the um, the Clubhouse story that the Times ran, I think it was today, um, which wasn't all that horrible. The the fettered thing was, I think, a subhead or a tweet, and it was terrible, and like everyone involved should be ashamed of themselves, although I appreciate them advertising their worldview, which is essentially we want to shrink the public square and say who gets to be in it. I mean, I've said for a long time that like there's – the, the a lot of the kind of online especially but just generally psychic space difference between the right and the left um, uh, in, in on the left people want to be bouncers they want to control who gets in and out the velvet rope and they want to sort of dictate and tell you what the dress code is and the behavior is and they want to keep that uh, population limited and on the right they want to be trolls you know they want to they want to uh, outrage the sensibilities of people, uh, as Martin was saying, uh, you know, very well or earlier, like the, the outrageousness is the attraction. Cause that way we know that you don't belong there. Cause we don't, we think the whole thing is, 
disreputable. There was a, a piece by a guy who I apparently was reminded that we mentioned here on the fifth column at, point, at some point named Hamilton Nolan, a former Gawker guy who wrote for the Columbia Journalism Review in October of last year, um, basically saying, and this is the CJR, which is supposed to be like an industry Bible and, um, uh, you know, talking about the mores of journalism. He's like, yeah, yeah, we're that's we're supposed to take people down. That's the role. We're supposed to wield this power to take politicians, to take business down a peg. That's that's like that. That is the exalted role of the press is to knock people down. And it, and I recommend people read it, not because it's good, but because it's a it's a snapshot into a worldview of using the power of media, that, which is a withering power. It's a waning power, um, but instrumentally like a club. And I and I think that the best way to read um, the finally uh, disgorged piece about Slate Star Codex that ran this week after being held for nine months. Um, and it's, it's too complicated to get into, but it was held for a lot of reasons. But, like, it's a really crappy piece. There was a perfectly fine piece in The New Yorker that came out about the same guy, you know, in the fall. Um, you might have some quibbles with it, but it was a, a piece of journalism. But, like, the what it was was a, the wielding of the instrument of power against someone who made The New York Times look bad. And, and I know that sounds uncharitable towards the Times, but dudes, you had nine months to work on this, and that's what you came up with? Like, really making horrible, like, guilt-by-association claims um, that shouldn't pass the smell test at a college newspaper and, and putting this on a story that you held for a long time. So I think that there is a, a conscious instrumentalization of power, of wielding power as, as being seen as part of the new moral clarity in our former guest Wes Lowry's uh, phrase um, that Martin also pointed out in his piece. Um, that is at play here, um, and that's only going to increase. And my hunch is that that's only going to continue to provoke people to build kind of force fields around whatever universes they're in so that the times can't get to them. Yeah, I don't necessarily disagree with that. <clears throat> all, I, all I would say is that kind of contempt that you started um, um, the conversation with uh, in, is is not only aimed externally, but seems to be very much aimed internally in the New York Times. Uh, there, I mean, it seems to me like every three weeks there is some flap in the New York Times where they have to hold a, a meeting and hold hands with the younger people and demand <laughs> somebody get fired. And, and it, it, it is very much, I mean, the, the problem is there's a dynamic to these things, right? When, when the Jacobins take over and you start, you start uh, taking people out to the guillotine, pretty soon it's the Jacobins going out to the guillotine and, and what happens then? So there's this dynamic of, of radicalization and of, and of um, um, sort of uproar from below in the Times itself, where you have a very definite sense of the younger, the younger newsroom despises its managers. All right, talk about contempt despises its managers and feels like they're a bunch of time servers and they're a bunch of compromisers and that they themselves know the truth and the truth ought to be out. Just about where we are now, because um, you see that there are there are elites and gatekeepers who are kind of losing their power. But as the Norma Desmond thing, I think is, is, is hilarious and fantastic. And, you know, we had Yasha Monk on 
who wrote a brilliant piece a long time ago for The Atlantic about the Hidden Tribe Survey, which showed that, you know, about 6% of the country is kind of in the woke universe, whereas if you were looking at the New York Times, and, and Democrats too, you know, Twitter Democrats are fur, way further to the left than people that actually vote for the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you wonder how much power these people have. Is it is it diminishing? Because they're certainly trying to hold on to their power and, you know, people being deplatformed, you know, celebrating people being kicked off of, you know, YouTube and Facebook and the rest of it. Whereas you see that, places like Facebook do have the power now. I mean, we saw Facebook ban all uh, posts from Australian news websites today. You yeah, I think the reporting on that's a little bit squirrely, but yeah. It's a bit squirrely, but you can't post a lot. It's an anticipation of some of some legislation in Australia. But regardless, it shows obviously- Revenue sharing. Yeah, revenue sharing thing. You click through, you have to pay for it. Um, you know, it just shows the power of people like Facebook. We obviously saw that with Twitter taking down not the post, but the New York Post whole account for many, many weeks for for posting something that might not have been relevant to the election, but users could read that and judge that for themselves. So where are we now with the elites? Who are the elites at the moment? Because it seems to be shifting quite a bit of who who has the power? Who's trying to wield it? That's a great question. And are they suffering the same sort of credibility hit? I mean, I, I've seen a bunch of headlines about what Elon Musk thinks or what Bill Gates thinks. Are are they the elites? And do they have the same sort of issue with the public that government does, that the academy does, that the journalism does? Well, if Elon Musk is not an elite, then good God, who is, right? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I, I interpret that Facebook uh, decision as being actually totally mandated by uh, the nation of Australia. The nation yeah. of Australia decided they wanted that their news to be paid for, and they were going to pass laws demanding that. And Facebook said, well, we're not going to do that. But but I mean, I'm sure they would be happy to restore them to, mm-hmm. to the status quo ante. The, the elites as a whole, I mean, elites are different. And I can tell you, it's very fascinating to me, the uh, reception that my book has gotten, for example. All right. And it's a weird reception and we can, I don't want to go into too much, but but. Uh, here in the states, it's weirdly is very popular in France. I mean, I, I think the yellow the yellow vests were my friends there. Um, <laughs> but here in the states, um, it has done really well in Silicon Valley. All right, I I was taken to to San Francisco early on, and suddenly I found myself a hero, I'm a hero <laughs> in, in, in 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 San Francisco. You know. I'm pretty much. A, I could confirm. I could confirm that. <laughs> I'm pretty much of a zero in Washington D.C. Though, <laughs> uh, so the elites are not the same everywhere, and that was kind of a surprise to me. And I came away thinking, honestly, and it wasn't just because they liked my book, but I, I was the level of person, of successful person, not to get to the name dropping or shit like that, um, that <laughs> invited me over to talk to me in this city of Washington, D.C., I would have had to jump through 18 hoops. And then in the 19th mm. would have been told, you're not important enough, go back to the beginning, right? And there, I was there for like three days and it was like, no, come on over, it's talk, come and talk. And I was um, and I was astounded and I went back later and, and uh, 
met a slightly different crowd, but how open the minds were. I think the idea that the book talks about, which is disruption, is something that Silicon Valley is comfortable with, right? It's a, it's a, it's a concept that in Washington, D.C., they just, it's something they want to stop, they want to prevent somehow, they want to cushion, they, the disruption is not good here. Uh, so I have never been rejected in Washington. I have just sort of been ignored. Whenever I'm, I have a Washington audience, I, f- I find like I'm talking in Mandarin or something. <laughs> but look at the audience in the eye. Their eyes get tiny and they kind of go into their head. You know? And, and it, 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 it just doesn't seem to work somehow. Mm-hmm. The elites are, uh, they're very divided. And I think the political elites and the media elites do not like, do not like the Silicon Valley technical elite, the technological elites, for very good reason. They're eating their lunch. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we started a little late, but I, I'd like to ask you one more question about that. And maybe uh, I want to endorse your book again and encourage people to go out and grab it because we, we're really only scratching the surface of, of a lot of the substance that's in there and the numerous examples of this that you give. Um, but you're also, I think, by way of that example you just gave, leaning into how some of this, how this ends, this cycle of kind of mismatched expectations and capability, like the public who is demanding all sorts of utopian things uh, from governments and journalism that they really can't deliver. I want you to be perfectly um, omnipotent and clairvoyant and perfectly objective. And journalism in some instances is promising to do this and failing to deliver. And that cycle of failure and disappointment and outrage is one that can perhaps stop if a certain kind of policymaker and a certain kind of government institution emerges. And again, read the book and you'll get more about it, but Martin just hinted at it. Um, But maybe you'll talk about it now because I'm going to ask you a a last question here um, and you can answer it however you like. And of course, add any other closing insights that you've got. But what what does the future look like with respect to media institutions in particular? How do you think this all shakes out? I've, I've talked to a number of people who are incredibly pessimistic about our capacity to forge new institutions that can give us truth. For them, for their, from their perspective, this multipolar world where there's a universe of substacks is a world where it is impossible for us to reach consensus about what actually happened in some event. You know, it's a, it's a universe of deep fake videos and all kinds of other terrible things. And it, it, what they're describing sounds dystopian. It's also out of phase with what I think is actually likely to happen. How do you imagine things are going to take shape? Because I imagine part of the reason why you're popular amongst the Silicon Valley crowd is because those people are interested in trying to build the institutions that will, if not completely displace the New York Times, do a very good job of competing with them and winning large shares of public attention um, and being able to, to, establish new mechanisms for, say, accrediting talent, which the universities used to do, or solving regular everyday problems the way government is supposed to do in a lot of contexts and fails to. So what do you see happening? Well, I'd have to preface that by saying that I I believe we are, we are in the, the very, very early stages of a colossal transformation, all right? So I, if I were to be an honest man, I'd have to say probably turbulence ahead for the foreseeable future. Um, I, um, I think 
the world of media is going to is already has been radically transformed. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't. My my advice would be don't invest money in uh, in media because I mean whatever works today is not going to hey, work tomorrow. Martin, I'm a media <laughs> entrepreneur. Seriously, <laughs> really. Well, okay. <laughs> Invest your money well. <laughs> uh, I, I I mean, and by the way, podcasts is one of the one of the everybody goes on them, everybody watches them, everybody listens to them. But it's like it will probably be a phase. I doubt that you'll be doing this ten years from now. Okay, um, so where is media going to go? I don't know. The deeper question is, is truth possible? Well, of course it is. And I think we'll get there. Um, We have to, I mean, my, my book was written. It it had a long complicated title, the revolt of the public and the crisis of authority. And what I really wanted to get across when I first wrote the book was there is this revolt of the public. Why is nobody paying attention to it? Well, Trump took care of that for me. Um, But now there. (laughs) Now, now there's this crisis of authority, and um, I, I am astounded. I'm totally astounded when I hear um, media institutions and elites talk about truth, because they tend to think that it's kind of like a platonic form or a gift from science, <laughs> along those lines, you know. And tr- truth is what you receive from a source that you believe has authority. All right. You and I have never seen uh, an atomic particle in our lives and never will either because they're not visible. Right. But if you ask me, do they exist? I'd say, yeah, probably they do, because people who seem to know these things say that they exist. All right. Uh, That is true of an enormous amount of what you and I think we know. It's went there and saw it with their own eyes. We listened to somebody we trusted. All right. Uh, and I think there, in our lives today, there there is still a lot of that going on, but it is politically is mostly gone. And even when you look at, at the the COVID nineteen, you know, situation, even in science, there's a lot of questioning going on. Um, there is no reason why. In fact, human nature being what it is, I would say there will be a moment of of uh, when, when we close behind some some source institutions of authority. I, I don't think that, that that it is almost inconceivable. If we don't, we'll fall apart. And I don't think we will. Um, my concern always has been that when we get to that moment, all the good things about this moment, such as our freedoms, our democracy, and so forth, that be too battered and bashed, all right? So I think it's up to us, because I mean, it's easy to criticize the elites, but to me, uh, uh, what Ortega Gasset said, which is that there's a, a mutual selection between the public and the elites, all right? We select our elites. It's not just we vote for them or we give them campaign money, but this, the people we watch on television, the books we read, you were talking so glowingly about the New York Times, and I had question marks inside my head about that. You know, that, 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 that's an elite for you, you know. So, so basically, we are selecting our authority, selecting our elites, and we need to do a better job of that. I mean, the elites that we have today are a pathetic crowd, a pathetic crowd. And I don't think I, we have ever had a worse elite class, certainly in my lifetime. So um, I think we have to start from scratch and, and start, I think, going for people who don't promise utopia, going for people who have the courage to not stand on some institutional pedestal, but to 
to have a much more intimate relationship with the public, which is possible online. Um, and so in the end, I think uh, it's up to us. It really is up to us. It's up to each and every individual to decide who is it that I'm going to uh, invest my attention to, which is really the most valuable asset you've got uh, to, to make this world uh, get to that, po- that, that truth moment. Well, Martin, thank you so much for joining us, man. I really appreciate it. Um, and again, folks, go out and get a copy of Revolt of the Public if you haven't already. I don't know what's wrong with you. Uh, Martin, where can people find your work if they are looking for your latest thoughts on various goings on of the day? Discourse magazine, uh, which comes out from Mercatus. And on occasion, uh, I will publish elsewhere, like City Journal, that was mentioned. Uh, but Discourse magazine is my, my main outlet these days. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, sir. Appreciate you. Thank Happy you, to be here. Yeah. Right. I like him. All right. He's I like him. I think he's right about most things. I felt like he was kind of leaning into me a little bit there. Like I was being a little too glowing in my, my praise for what the times has been. And in some respects, I think really still is in important areas. Like the, the fact that we've actually seen the evidence, the very public weird evidence of that internal civil war that Barry suggested was going on and people called her a liar and then mocked her mercilessly as she resigned and left as she headed out the door. Like we've seen we've seen evidence of this civil war. It's amazing. You know, and, and the people who believe in this mechanism of journalistic objectivity and who are doing like very serious straight news reporting, who've developed sources and who believe in their credibility a great deal. Like they're still there and they're still, I think doing good work and trying their hardest to, to live up to that standard. And it's one of the things that, I mean, we mentioned Andy a little earlier who, um, I don't know that we've done a podcast since his departure from the Times where I've had an opportunity to talk about him, but I think Andy embodied a lot of those values. Yeah. Um, and there are still people there like Andy. You see what happens to people who actually do um, still uphold those values in the domestic political context. I saw recently Maggie Haberman. I can't remember what the context was, but Maggie Haberman, I, I, she has been unbelievably critical of Donald Trump on yeah. Twitter. And just done great And reporting. done great reporting. And, you know, Donald Trump would still sit down with her. And I can't remember what the context was, but recently I saw these people, well, you know, Maggie Haberman's been, you know, given Donald Trump a pass was, for the past five I'll, years. I'll like, tell you the no. context. The context was this four bylined story That's right. saying that Trump's, COVID sickness was worse was than worse we originally than, yeah. thought. Yeah. And uh, Dan, I right. believe it was Dan Frumkin of uh, Press uh, Watchers, whose last name accurately describes his entire persona, mm. um, uh, singled her out, the only lady of the four, yeah. um, uh, as saying, That's like, right. like, see, this is the, just well, once again, trade and access, just can't believe this access journalism. It's ridiculous. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, but by the way, it's called fucking journalism. And you know what? The thing is, is when you talk to people before you get them to sit down on camera or before you get them to sit down and actually uh, agree to an interview, you talk to them in a very specific way. You don't go in there and say, you know what? You fucking scumbag. You know what I hate about you? It's everything racist. you've done. You're a racist and, you know, the Muslim ban and all this stuff. And you can think all of those things. But that's not how you approach getting somebody to sit down on a camera. It's like, oh, you trade access. Show it to me. 
show me the place where she has been incredibly soft on Donald Trump. But what they are, what they want is what Camille is saying. They want more of that. And the reason, and I think when we were talking um, to Martin, Camille, you're right in, in saying something like Belarus. And that's where, of course, these journalists at the New York Times excel. And it's not because you don't know anything about Belarus. It's because Belarus doesn't really have any effect on America. If it has any kind of ripple in American politics. So for instance, the way you cover Boris Johnson is going to be pretty similar to the way you cover Donald Trump. And, and it's going Bolsonaro to be too. Bolsonaro. It's going to be ideological mm-hmm. in that sense. And even Putin. Right. But if there is something going on in mm-hmm. Myanmar, like a coup, or if there is something going on in, you know, Mozambique or wherever, if it doesn't have echoes in the United States, it's it usually comes off pretty straight. And I imagine that's also because there's not the hands of a, a million um, rather ideological editors getting involved, too. So, you know, which is a new kind of it's, a, it's a new kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's plenty that we missed um, in the in the past couple of weeks, um, <laughs> or at least so. the week last week and a half. We we haven't weighed in on a lot of the time stuff. We we didn't talk about this impeachment round two, um, which Donald Trump again beat those charges uh, and now finds himself facing some civil cases. Uh, I, I believe at least one has been launched against him. Some potential investigations from different states, like New York, still going after him. So. He's he's not going away. Certainly that stuff is not going away. There's a, a truth and reconciliation thing that's supposed to be happening in Congress. Where we're that finally going to get to the bottom of what happened um, at the Capitol. By the way, did, so it, has, has anyone noticed that that when he got rid of it, this shows me how little Donald Trump actually cares about politics if he's not in charge after the Twitter feed went away, he shut up. Because he had it's a, not, it's he had not a long statement today or yesterday. Yeah, and he Mr. has this Trump. office of the ex-president kind of thing, which is hilarious. And Melania I get the emails. Has one too. Yeah, I know it's amazing. It's the best one. <laughs> that is the best one. Did you read it? Oh my I mean, god! Really, she really sent me one today. Make... <laughs> she said, "I don't have what has happened. I don't know where DC is. I was in DC, and now I got in Florida with the with the crocodiles." Um, that's what she said. I don't know. She said crocodiles. He's just reading. He's just reading. But there's other uh, there's other places where he could go online and spread his message, and he's not doing it. Yeah. Right. He has a website. You have a website. Not a website. You can put up videos of yourself saying things. But he's not. Clips, but the clips of that would start to go. Would start to flood social media. Exactly. Is, is Twitter going to start taking down. Individuals who are posting videos well, of the president saying think crazy of, things. Think about and there what are a, people who would happily post those videos yes. of Trump saying crazy things, and they're probably not his supporters. But and there's about, probably one of them in this on this on this recording right now, Camille. Uh, <laughs> think about <laughs> what Welch. what a boss uh, he must think rightly that he is. He doesn't have to say a damn thing really um, over the next months. He still um, it's not even him. Um, it's better to think about it as uh, people, uh, his supporters. The fear of his supporters governs the behavior of elected Republicans to this day in the Senate and in the House, overwhelmingly. Um, that's amazing. So a guy who lost uh, two elections in the popular vote, um, won the first one um, in a squeaker uh, in the Electoral College, um, guy who certainly his interventions uh, blew up the possibility of Mitch McConnell returning as a majority leader uh, because the the horrifying way that they uh, acted in uh, Georgia, um, just making it all about uh, the recounts and, and and all the nonsense. So this guy um, still uh, 
that he is the kingmaker of the Republican Party, and he doesn't have to say a word. Mm -hmm. He really doesn't. He doesn't. What does he have to do? And who is going to step up at all in the Republican Party, not even to repudiate him, just to say that, okay, I'm Josh Hawley. I, I run things now. I'm I'm the you know spiritual heart of the party. No, you are not, sir. Mm-hmm. Like none of these people are. And and the the impeachment thing, which uh, I guess the best you could say about it is that it, thankfully it only lasted five days, or I don't know what. Um, uh, I would have voted yes. So I should say that you know I'm I'm glad that they. Uh, impeached him. They screwed it up at all levels. They didn't appoint for the second time. They didn't appoint a Republican as a manager of the case. It's like, do you want to win? Like, mm-hmm. is that part of what you're doing? Anyways, um, but like, uh, they, did, they didn't want to win. They didn't want to win. <laughs> they didn't want to win. Is a is a is a very plausible answer. But one of the benefits of it is that it demonstrated that he or you know fear of his base or fear of the way that Republicans. Uh, like him. And again, we're saying this on the day that Rush Limbaugh died. And I think Rush Limbaugh helped shape uh, Republican politics towards this more kind of um, a populist organization of hatreds, which is why he was always best when there was a Democratic president. Um, uh, so that mode of of Republican being or conservative being um, is the strongest current in the party. Um, and every, you know, Tom, Dick and Ben Sass uh, knows that. Um, and with rare exceptions, it governs their behavior. And that's good to know. It's good to know that the people who were elected in those jobs largely are terrified little children, not necessarily that they have to agree with me on or anybody else on impeachment, but you could just see the way that they talk about it, the way they could try to come up with, I think, pretty scurrilous you know, First Amendment arguments there. Um, so, yeah, Donald Trump doesn't have to do a damn thing. Doesn't have to give interviews. He's given, I think, a Sean Hannity interview tonight. Uh, again, we're oh, taping on Wednesday. Um, but he doesn't have to do anything. He, the people will be going down the Kevin McCarthy's. Everyone's going to go down to kiss the ring. Um, that's going to be the currency of the party until someone else comes along. But, like, who? I don't see it happening. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it is yeah. always funny and important to, to realize that the Republican Party needs to obviously burn itself to the ground and start rebuilding. It's a rebuilding season, right? You would assume that that would happen to the Republican Party because, you know, how often do we think about the fact that the Republican Party only won a single election in the popular vote since when? 19... The last seven, I think, right? Uh, yeah. I, I, since I, after Nixon George, in 72, the only one that won... I George H.W. Bush. George H.W. Uh, and that was no, the last... No, uh, and then Bush in 2004. I didn't break it. Uh, no, no, but I mean, think about the, the fact that from 2000, even, you know, or let's say, yeah, from 1992 to today, the Republican Party has won the popular vote in one election. Yeah. Since 1992. But then again. In one presidential But then election. again, the Republican Party did pretty good in the 2020 elections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Trump, Trump didn't. Yeah, Trump um, didn't. And I mean, then Trump screwed up Georgia for yeah. the senators. But like the Republican Party did good because <laughs> there's a great negative polarization. I mean, I think about this all the time um, with the stupid schools stuff that's happening and the CDC's guidelines for schools, which is horrific. But like so Republicans, generally speaking, uh, over generally speaking, are just sort of gormless, principledless, um, kind of awful human beings. Democrats can't run anything. Yeah. Show me a thing that Democrats are running. Just show me the good governance story with Democrats right now. Anywhere. Like, oh, that guy's doing it. 
She's really like, she's like delivering those services. Maybe the governor of Rhode Island is doing a good job. Okay. Uh, I don't know if that's true. Um, but like, at least they had the schools open. But like, that's, you were between the, gov- the, the, you know, the party that can't govern and has really, really bad ideas and the party full of really just horrifyingly opportunistic chameleons. It's just awful. And look, it, it, the, the opposition, the opposition. Wow, chameleons, instinct. really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I didn't say chameleons. Yeah, that's, chame- how chameleon. price, uh, <laughs> that's how literally everybody. Says your name, but um, I know. no. I mean, in this in this moment now, considering that you know, look, I, I, I'll say this. I'll say this about what what Martin was saying, and I think that Camille kind of brushed up against this, and it was it's a little too specific to talk about, and it's probably worth talking about now because I have been talking about this off the record for a while, not willing to talk about it publicly. But you know, without Donald Trump. The Republican Party is nothing. Well, for Donald Trump, the liberals are nothing at this point, you know, particularly, you know, ones in the media. And I think that you see that in the coverage of the July, the, the January 6th stuff, because people like, for instance, Glenn Greenwald has been pointing out something that I've been pointing out for a couple of weeks. And I was apparently the only one who noticed this. And I, we talked about it a little bit. I texted you guys about it. And Camille and I were like, Meh, maybe probably not the best time to talk about this. And that um, is about the police <laughs> officer uh, in, in who died um, after the July, uh, January 6th riot. And the presumption that he was beaten to death or bludgeoned to death with a uh, fire hydrant or a fire hydrant fire. Did I say fire hydrant? Yeah. I did say fire hydrant. That, that would be amazing if they yeah, did that. Uh, fire extinguisher, right? So that the thing about that that is kind of crazy to me is there is that. There is the fact that I now saw this say seven people, I don't know how we got to seven, people who died as a result of uh, the protests and seven people. When the fact of the matter is that that's just not even close to being true. Even when people say five, it's not even close to being true. The context of that is vital and it wouldn't be allowed to, you know, some people would not be allowed to make that claim if it were a different target. And the target is essentially the ridiculous Donald Trump and he is responsible for, you know, unleashing this baying mob. You can hold that belief, ladies and gentlemen. And actually think the reporting on this has been shameful and has everybody has been looking to play this up in the most horrendous possible way. Everything that possibly could be true that reflects badly on our shitty ex-president. People are look, I get it, but that's not the job of, of reporters. The job of reporters is not to like echo the stuff they want to be true and say when somebody questions it, as is being is, is being, is being said now. Glenn Greenwald says a few things about this, and people are like, oh, there's trutherism, the denialist. It's like you literally have not engaged with anything that he said, and what he's saying comes from mainstream sources, some of which you people are affiliated with, which is CNN, New York Times has walked back this. <laughs> This uh, was it. Brian Sicknick is his name. Is that the yeah? The cop? And like, do you remember Jessica Lynch? I mean, the stories. Uh, in, oh yeah, from Iraq. in yeah. in the moment stories of great heroism or or horrifying deaths and things like that. Um, the close, the more the, the more heated it is, the more likely that it's going to be a bit mangled in yes. retrospect. And, and but nobody wants to correct that because. It, it, it runs up against this narrative of like, I see people that I know, that we know, um, referring to the, what happens you know, on, on January 6th as terrorism. And all of whom were people that didn't like the inflation of the word terrorism in the past. 
like it. Now, I don't see how one can come to the conclusion that this is terrorism. Did they go to the Mall of America and start, like, braining babies? <laughs> they went to Congress. They like, went to Congress. And and as Martin Gurry pointed out, you know, they're, you saw somebody flee in France, uh, Macron. You saw in Germany the parliament be uh, breached by people that were opposing more lockdowns. This is that not totally uncommon and I'll tell you what, it's bad, but it isn't the Rwandan genocide. And when you think I'm being a little over the top, there was somebody on mm. CNN named Anderson Cooper who did invoke the Rwandan genocide. No. Yes, no. yes. He said, you know, this is what... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it oh, like yeah. The, oh, yeah. the black sweatshirt Anderson Cooper or was it like Ty? It was Ty Anderson okay. Cooper, yeah. And it was, you know... I he like was, black sweatshirt. He was in a yeah, tie. tie. Yeah, he was in a tie. Right. And he was uh, saying uh, crazy things. And, you know, look, this if we want to go to this point, no one is willing to say that this stuff is bullshit. Not that the protest was was not dangerous and despicable, which we were all we've all been very clear. Not about. that the president wasn't reckless when he talked about the election being stolen. 100%. Not that he doesn't have some culpability in helping to whip up this horrible disaster Absolutely. and help to, to precipitate this fucking travesty. But Absolutely. it's not terrorism it's not a coup it's not an armed rebellion and that seems relevant it seems we I used to give end. a shit about threat inflation i, 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 I did yeah. i said this at the beginning and i think i kind of eked it out because there was no you didn't want to kind of go against the, the the developing narrative but you know our our friend who we don't know uh alice from queens has been great on this and of just cataloging all the things that turned out not to be true. And it's all the most horrifying stuff, the most egregious stuff, is that you can't just let the guy being crushed in the door video stand on its own. We can get a huge impression of how awful these people are by watching that. But, you know, Nancy Pelosi is saying the armed rebellion, the arm, that was not an armed rebellion. These are all people that own collectively 148 million guns. The 8,000 people there were collectively own over a million yeah, guns. That's science. In, in, in the science. That's just the fact. <laughs> it's true. In, in, the, in, the, in the number it's of true. people that actually They've walked in. they got so much ammunition. If they so wanted much. So much. Well, it's DC's restrictive gun laws that, yeah, you, sure. that you libertarians are against. Yeah. That, <laughs> that saved us it's from. You're, you're probably from right. The yeah. massacre that day. I, well, I, it it would have gone. It would have gone badly. The pipe bomb guy. It would have gone badly. But, but do you know why it would have gone? legislation. <laughs> that's true but do you know why it, it would have gone badly and and, and i i think this is a real it was a real pipe bomb what but, happened but with that guy who is who did no they arrest anyone i don't know i think pipe bomb guy got arrested i don't I know if so. we no. caught anybody for that yet really? I, I think so. we would know no well, i don't think depends. so can we speculate on who it was because i bet it was the same guy no no i was gonna say a name but i'm not gonna do it i totally i think he's in jail we we do know we, we do, do know, know that he's been locked regardless, up. Regardless, he think writes for the Claremont it, it, Institute of <laughs> Review. It was Michael Anton. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Oh he was, was going to Flight 93 the flight this motherfucker. The Flight 93 <laughs> pipe bombing. <laughs> I actually think something that um, Martin Martin said when he talked about kind of the, the failures around um, the, the summer's unrest, governmental failure on a day when they knew tens of thousands of angry people were going to be demonstrating near the Capitol. You've got like four or five Capitol police officers standing next to a wooden barricade. Like this is not going to end well. There's, there's an explanation for this that doesn't require 
me to believe the narrative that what happened here is white supremacist terrorist violence and that is what is animating all of the awfulness on the right um, but certainly none of the the virtue um, on the left is contaminated and we just need to to honor them for their sacrifice I don't want to go back to this too much but I want to explore one thing briefly what why do people say beyond their own ideological priors that this is a false equivalence when you say, here's what happened this summer and here's what happened at um, uh, the Capitol on, on the 6th? Today, and we are recording this on Wednesday, today the insipid, idiotic waste of space and atoms and breath Joe Scarborough was doing another one of his fake rants where he gins up fake outrage. And then, you know, he's like, you know, looks at his cue cards when it goes comes to commercial. And he was saying today, um, screaming about this again, because they, this is MSNBC is like, you know, when the, when the Russia stuff ended, Rachel Maddow's uh, viewing figures went off a cliff. When Donald Trump, they're not going to let that happen again. When Donald Trump goes away, they're going to keep this stuff going. So he has to come up with this performative outrage of the day. And he said, you know, this is not the same thing. This is the capital. This is a sacred space. This is not the same thing as like your taco stand or whatever he said. And it's like, honestly, number one. Taco stand's always better. Fuck you. Because I talked to many people whose live is some of it's on camera. You can look at it on YouTube, like a first generation immigrant who worked his ass off to build fucking multiple used car lots. All were burned to the ground. And he didn't have insurance to cover it all. The same thing with the, you know, the Danish uh, society of these old people who has all their memories, all their photographs were burned up. And it's like, yeah, it's not the same as the Capitol where people went in. One of the protesters were shot and killed and, you know, someone, you know, tore a sign off. Like, all of it horrible. But, it, you know, yeah, you're right, Joe Scarborough. It is not the same. The other shit is worse, like measurably worse. When people's lives are upended and ruined, the shit that they've collected their whole lives that have built with their bare hands is burned to the fucking ground for some incoherent political idea. But the Capitol is a sacred space. It's a sacred space full of fucking liars and frauds. That does not mean that it should be invaded by people and they should go into people's office and threaten them, etc. It's all disgusting. But to say this, like, this is a moral equivalence, like, yeah, 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 yeah. This, this is the wrong equivalence. The other shit is worse. Burning people's businesses down, but like you know, you're putting people in incredible danger. You set the places on fire for Christ's sake. Who knows what's in there? Somebody's sleeping in a cot in the back for fuck's sake. You know, trying to burn down a building in Portland where people are sealed inside. That's not a bad thing because it's not the capital. And Joe Scarborough is going to get up and salute the flag and say, "This is a sacred space." Go fuck yourself because it is not a sacred space. Uh, two points quickly. One, Michael has this uh, this antlers on his head. I didn't notice them before, but they're big, and he's he's taking his shirt <laughs> off, yeah. and he's got a he's got a nice little rug going there. I am a Viking. <laughs> he is I am a Viking, a Viking of Q. He's, he's vegan. I'm vegan. Viking. I'm a va- I'm the a vegan. Q, Q mythic. <laughs> uh, the second point in, but uh, to back up George Scarborough, which is what, what I try to do mostly yeah, because yeah. of his music is so good, so good. He's just so, rock and we roll. Know. We know he's so on the edge. Rock and roll. Um, is that no? I think this the argument is that this was at the moment of a transfer of power. Doesn't matter. Um, transfer of power happened. It was never not going to happen. Me? It was never not going to happen. Me? It doesn't like if those people had guns. It still wasn't going to happen. The transfer of power would happen. That would happen. 
It yeah. just, it would be a bloody one, but it would happen. Okay. And I don't want that to happen. And it didn't happen. And that's a hypothetical. Whereas the stuff that happened to people whose livelihoods were ruined uh, because of some fucking 17 year olds, you know, desire to be a revolutionary, they're probably still rebuilding. And that is a serious thing that is constantly underplayed with this nonsense about insurance and nonsense about symbolism. Yes, it is important that if people do not try to subvert democracy in that way. There is, you know, there's no, I can't say this enough, but you have to keep throat clearing and saying it because people, you know, well, why are you talking about that? You should be binary. This is what we do in journalism. We should hate one thing and love the other. Why are you doing this? Why are you seeing shades of gray here? Well, the reason I'm seeing shades of gray here is because I have constantly said, that, you know, this stuff is bad. If there was people on mainstream television that I was watching, maybe this is happening, I'm not watching it, saying this stuff is awesome, I would be yelling about them. But they don't exist. They don't exist. I don't see them. Maybe they do on One America Loser Network or whatever the fucking, you know, News Scratch or whatever the hell it's called. <laughs> Christopher Putty, like all these losers. I, I don't want to subscribe to News Scratch. Scratch. It's the best. It's the yeah. best network on TV. Um, it's all the, all the shows are hosted by Joe Piscopo. Um, <laughs> but, you know, all this stuff is like, if that were happening, I'd be yelling about that. But this thing that there's a false equivalence, it is an excuse to say what happened this summer was not bad because sure. you have an investment in it. You have an investment in the ideology behind it. And you won't defend it. I am better than you. And you know why? Because I will say, I, I will say, not you. I will say that the, the actual, <laughs> you are, you do suck, by the way. Um, because <laughs> I will say that the ideology is bad. And, and, you know, like, unlike they won't say the same thing about Black Lives Matter and what precipitated it is worse, right? They will like they will not criticize anything on that side or say, oh, it's false equivalents. Of course, we lament blah, blah, blah. But, you know, they're literally on television with blazing fires. It looks like fucking Dresden in 1945. And they're saying, you know, limited rioting. It's just it's peaceful, mostly peaceful. You know, that is flacking for this stuff. If anyone flacked for the fucking idiots that attacked the Capitol on the 6th. I would hopefully attack them, too. Well, I think I have. But I'm not sure that there's a lot of those in the mainstream at the moment. So. I said I didn't want to go backwards to that. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, that was. Yeah, that you, wasn't... you done went backwards. I, I done, you done sorry, went backwards. Sorry. I didn't realize that there was so um, much we, cocaine dude, lying we, around. We haven't in the fucking here. talked in a week and a half. I'm pissed off. <laughs> we haven't. No, we have. Well, we've talked a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I, I had some things to do, and you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I had some. Hey, things we're to allowed to take a fucking vacation. I need it. Need a little bit of time. Jesus. Yeah. Um. I do. I do want to say shout out. Shout out to Texas because God. I mean, they're really going through it. That's some shit. Thin skin, fat dude. We're with you. Sorry, but not sorry. Yeah, we sorry for you. Not sorry for our lack of content. But like, yeah, we have got a lot of Texas. How's Busty doing? Have we heard from Busty Wimsett? Busty, I think he's doing okay. Yeah, we've been. He's probably got like a hundred generators. I mean, (laughs) dude's like a civil engineer. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He just built a generator out of like popsicle sticks and Uh, like old ABBA records. Our friend Liz Wolf is is uh, is out there right now. Jacob Solom. The Jacob Solom slack uh, at Reason is just phenomenal because that same kind of writing that he does. Yes. Um, he's yeah. talking about his absolutely miserable experience and trying to not freeze to death. It's, oh. It's, yeah, yeah. She's like, um, then I went and procured a uh, <laughs> <laughs> split some logs and tried to burn a fire. Sorry, Jake. I'm not making fun of you. Um, no, it's, it's, it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible what's happening to our friends in Texas. So, um, and everybody, of course, is making stupid political points about all of this, which yeah. I can't follow and don't care to follow. Yeah. I just feel bad for the people that actually have to live for this. So I hope everybody's doing okay there. Because I know we have a lot of listeners yeah. there. Yeah. Big but, state. 
Makes you me know, it's, it's funny that that we've been you know just gone for a little bit, just yeah. a week and a half or something. And in that time, I tried to make a list while I was driving from West Egg today uh, into the city of, of people who have been canceled. I just I just I know this came up. It was something I was listening to, and it kind of popped into my head. And it, the list was so long of like just in like the last like couple weeks of people who have been like brutalized on Twitter. And like when you live in the moment and it's happening, there's one that happens and like we talk about it and then some time goes by. It's, oh, you just see this other thing that happened and we get bored of talking about it. But then you realize when you just haven't talked a lot about politics because I took like a break for a little bit is that it just happens so much that I think the people that deny that this is a real thing are mentally ill. I think it's crazy. It takes a lot of work. It, it, you have to go into the, um, and you see this happening already of like, um, well, they're bad people who deserve the consequences yes. of their actions. Yes. Right. Uh, yeah. or that, um, you're paying attention to that when we almost had a fa- fascist takeover in this country. I'm just shaking my damn head at you. Yeah. That's, that's, those are the lines. Those, are, those are my favorite ones. <laughs> like <laughs> you're upset that you missed the train, uh, when there's people dying in, uh, in Africa. I'm like, yeah, yeah no, I know, but that's, I still missed my track. I can't do anything about that. <laughs> like, I can hold two thoughts in my head at once, you know, but, uh, but yeah, no, there's been so many, like I appear, I think I stopped sending them cause I get so bored of them. Like, there was like the guy from The Bachelor who didn't denounce someone enough and he was fired because sure. yeah. some previous contestant said something was like racially insensitive. It's just nonstop. And when you take a break, I don't want to discuss him, but just when you take a break, you realize the volume of it is just so psycho. Because people are like, oh, did you hear about Gina Carano? Carano? I mean, my. Tw- I don't even know who that person is. My terrible tween daughter, who I love uh, dearly and you love even more, but um, like she comes down to dinner and her first report to us, because of course she's spending her life uh, uh, in front of screens, is like who on TikTok got canceled. And I'm using air quotes there because they didn't get canceled, they got like criticized pretty strongly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's now become tween usage of that's what canceled means it's like bullied yeah or yeah. something like that is she is she gleeful about it um no no but she senses the ten tension in the room yeah. like like she knows that uh, <laughs> she's gonna her, cancel your wife soon <laughs> her mom and i are not fond like we had uh, strenuous arguments about uh uh ellen um because she's like you know ellen you know deserves to get canceled because she's really mean to her staff i'm like dude like, have you been to Hollywood? Mm. Have you have you seen a high functioning like entertainer? Mm. They're not nice people. You, you you know what the thing about this is, and it's not about any of these cases. I give a with fuck the exception about of Kim Kardashian. She's, She's lovely. Very nice. She's yes. lovely. She's lovely. She's lovely. She's a hero. Trump. And the other Kardashian got canceled today because, mm. uh, or they they can't you can't cancel a Kardashian. Yeah. Or people were 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 ganging up on her because she had a, she started a tequila brand. Yeah, not- um, what's her name? The Kendall Jenner. Wait, or whatever? so George Clooney? Yeah, no, that's fine. Tequila brands, no, yeah, no yeah. problem. Randy Jim, Gerber, fine. Jim Cramer can have a tequila bar around the corner from my Jim house. Jim Cramer does. He shout at you when you don't drink enough. Um, <laughs> don't hit that button. <laughs> <laughs> He's such an asshole. I just pounded the table. Um, Felt good. But my favorite of this was that is the thing to point out about it is not in these cases, but is the demands <laughs> for apologies, which is my favorite, because there was a variety review. Did you see this? this is my favorite one. This is kind of a new vista is why I'm interested in it. In Variety, had a freelance writer. And, you know, with the world we're in, so it, it resonates with us. And the writer gave this movie a pretty, you know, negative 
uh, uh, review and said something about the actress who was the, the lead. The woman who's the actress, somebody famous, I don't know who the fuck it is, but the, somebody famous said that this was a bad thing and they were like criticizing me because I was a woman. Right? I can't remember what she was saying. Variety took, the, took it upon themselves to um, append an apology to the review no. and said, we're to sorry. Review. Yeah, we're sorry this person had this opinion that you didn't, you don't like and we apologize for this. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is where we're going. And I realized that the demands for apologies, and this is why people like our friend Andy Mills and all this stuff, I'd recommend that none of them ever apologize unless they truly mean it. If that's they want to do that, that's fine. But don't apologize because the people who ask for apologies never offer forgiveness. Correct. They just want the apology. Correct. And it's just to debase you and to humiliate you, and they have no interest in forgiveness. Have you ever seen one of these people who has said, you know what, I was wrong, I can't believe I did this, you caught me, I'm going to take my lumps. I'm really sorry that they were like, okay, cool. I get it. Yeah. Give us like a week and, and, and we'll, we'll get back to you and you'll be back on your feet. Yeah. It's no, never happened. It's, uh, Elizabeth Brunig has been making that point for a long time now that this uh, culture, this trend um, just lacks any, any sense of forgiveness or grace. Yeah. That's it. It's a, it is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a purity spiral of punishment. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the most provocative things that Martin Gurry um, argues, and I think he might get right, and that and that troubles me is that there's something right now to um, it's this revolt is about repudiation. This uh, this uh, overlaps with stuff that uh, Nancy Rollman, who's in the next room shouting on Clubhouse, Clubhouse last I looked, has talked about Portland. Like they just I hope she doesn't say anything <laughs> offensive because I'm going to ask for her to apologize to us. Taylor about Lawrence it, yeah. is just on it, yeah. man. Um, yeah. uh, but like like. <laughs> The kids she has just like want a to, fake mustache and like a sombrero on. Like the kids want to break shit, sneaking in, uh, and there isn't a, a whole lot of thought uh, put into it. And like we're just sort of in this mass repudiation and punishment mode, and that's just weird. It's but just you know, weird. you know what's amazing about it is that is the historical element of this that people getting are getting really into now. I tried to watch the New York Times. Don't ask me why. I was alone. I was crying, and I had been drinking. Um, so just let me set the scene for you again, again, I, I had a couple of drinks in me. I was by myself <laughs> and I was horns. Like, um, I might've fair wax on the, on the a, fur. A person I know might have left a one hitter around and I was like, I haven't done that in a while. And the next thing you know, I'm like incense and peppermints, like no pants on. I got the fucking TV on. And I tried to watch that New York times, uh, Britney documentary. And oh, I watched no. it. I, yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Cause it was, everyone's like fucking going crazy about how great it was. And I was like, so Oh my God. This stoned, is so hugging yourself. I wasn't, in East I was just drunk. I think yeah. I'm, I don't know who, who knows what happens at that point, but I'm watching this thing and it is the most ludicrous thing I've ever seen in my life. In the next five days is all of these people online in like major publications asking Justin Timberlake to apologize t- to her now because he said something mean in like a radio interview that they featured in the documentary. It's fucking nuts. And then a day after that, somebody posted an interview that David Letterman did with, um, what's the, that girl's name from Long Island? Who, Lindsay Lohan. Lindsay Lohan. And apparently he was- Lindsay Lohan? Yeah, it was Lindsay Lohan. Yeah. And he was like mean to her. And I was like, David Letterman should apologize for this interview that he did in 1996. She was a shit show. Yes, of course she was. And apparently he's asking, I didn't watch it. He's asking her about like rehab or something like, it's disgusting the way these men talk to blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, 
Dave, if you didn't, first of all, if you didn't know David Letterman was a dick until now. Yeah. <laughs> but like, what is this thing where everyone's going around asking people to apologize for interviews that they did 10, 15, when 20 years ago? When are they going to make Jay Leno apologize for asking uh, uh, dude, uh, Hugh it, Grant, what were you thinking? Uh, it, it's amazing. Because of this, it's amazing you said this. Because of this, there was a demand also no. for Jay Leno no. to apologize for his Monica Lewinsky jokes. Uh, I think it was like Yasher Ali or whoever is, you know, yeah. usually raising money for people or something. But he, I don't know it's what like he does. Killing elephants. But but he, I, I think it was him. I don't want to impugn him. Maybe it wasn't him. But somebody had been like, yeah, look at these sick Jay Leno jokes about Monica Lewinsky. And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, really? I mean, what do we do? This is like. Monica Lewinsky has a, a case to be made for herself and like the way that she was trashed, especially the feminists trashed her. Yes. But like. Late night comedians talking about a president getting a blowjob, that's gonna be a source of comedy. Yes. That yeah. And and you know, the I guess the angle is that she's kind of slotty or whatever. That's what I assume it was. And you know, you can make those jokes, whether or not it's true, you can make them and they can fail or they can be funny, who knows? But um you're talking about someone who's like having an affair and with the president. And you know, I I'm not surprised that people just said whatever the hell they wanted then. I don't care. Honestly, I don't want to go back. I want to go back to like Edward G. Robinson movies and be like, you know, that was really unfair to the Irish in the back who comes <laughs> in. He's like, I'd like a little drink, you fucking bastard. And then he like falls over and they're like, Meh. I don't, I mean, every fucking movie in the past, like when is this going to end? But I don't know, whatever. That's what I thought of for the last week and a half. So Stoned, crying, antlers. I mean, the antlers I, I bought... In a, in a QAnon novelty store on the way back. Yeah. <laughs> Camille, are you still there? Did you, did we just bore you to death? No, no, I'm good. I think there maybe it was just an earthquake. I just felt the building move oh. uh, that I'm sitting in. I should probably go look into that. Maybe um, hit stop <laughs> on the recording. Yeah. yeah. I don't feel bad for you. No, honest. it's fine. It's, it's fine. No Whatever. Reason, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm fine. Okay. Blame All me. right. So I guess we should go. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse. The Fifth Column.